0: Thank you for downloading this Hay Festival's podcast. For more information about the Hay Festival's globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank
1: you.
2: And one of the things that we've seen is that Um, in a sense, weak states can't compete with the likes of large corporations or healthcare companies, agricultural businesses that are able to come and utilise the digital um, to deliver services. So, for for example, there's a real growth in off-grid electricity, which on the one hand is really exciting. It means that private actors can connect up solar cell technology um, across areas that didn't have any electricity and provide that service because what they can do is link up people's remote village and settlements um, using SIM cards and enable them to pay for the electricity in a way that defers the actual cost of the infrastructure. So it's quite powerful in that way. It's very exciting. It brings light and it brings energy into um, households that didn't have it. But it also creates new challenges because those sorts of services go where there's an economy to produce them. So there are populations that don't benefit from those sorts of technologies, Um, and that obviously can change over time, but it does place burdens on who's in and who is out in the delivery of these privatised public goods. Um, There's also, I guess, the bigger challenge that, in a sense, the the global side of this is ways in which big corporations, internet giants, telecommunications companies increasingly dominate this space. Um, And there's a battle, in a sense, over people's digital worlds. And right now, actually, the the battle is over people's mobile phone platforms. I don't know if anyone here has heard of um, Facebook's uh, free basics, the the sort of the the free internet um, and the sort of debates that have been going on about that. Um, The the controversy started really at the moment in in India because Facebook has been part of a big initiative to bring free internet through the mobile phone, working with mobile network operators. Which of course is really exciting um, in many respects. It's the first time that large proportions of the population have access to the internet. But the problem with, with this in the Indian case was that it was skewed towards um, the, the services and access points uh, on the, of a limited range of, of, um, of applications in which there was a preference for Facebook-related products or, or, or um, uh, clients. So there's this, it was banned in, the, in India, and the challenge being that you bring certain amounts of these things free, but nothing comes completely free or completely easy. Um, And in a sense, the mobile phone is another lens on the world and so what people see through it um, is is everything is is controlled by the initial applications and the opportunities it it offers. In a recent poll in Nigeria, um, 65% of Nigerians that were polled um, agreed with the statement that Facebook is the internet. So the sense in which this is becoming a, not the internet that we may have imagined earlier, but the internet that is shaped by dominant global capital um, is a real challenge. So, unfortunately, some of our most loved internet creations also smack of power imbalances. Take Wikipedia, um, which we all know and like, I'm sure. Its goal is to compile the sum um, of all human knowledge. And a a good colleague of mine, Mark Graham at the Oxford Internet Institute, and his uh, team have done some really interesting research about some troubling truths when it comes to the African continent. So in 2013, more edits um, on Wikipedia pages came from Hong Kong than all of Africa combined. Um, There were more articles in in Wikipedia on Middle Earth and on Antarctica than there were on many African countries. And indeed, of the amount of content that was on African countries on Wikipedia, only 5% of entries about African countries were coming um, by Africans themselves who are based on the continent. And The issue is that this is, fast, this is rapidly changing. This, this is not a story of despair or anything, but it's a story of the way in which certain knowledge assets that we think are open and free and easy um, are still suffering from some of the, the problems that come from who controls and who um, has access. And I think one of the things we'll hear about today is that it's not about Wikipedia. You know, it's about what is happening on the continent for the continent by the continent that really matters. But there are still these troubling dynamics to keep in in mind. So in the context of all of this, um, some of the research I've been doing with colleagues in Cambridge is really focused on well, what does it look like to try and seize this revolution and tilt its advantages back to a more progressive and inclusive idea of the digital? we researched first this space and how it's changing, and we focused on something really low tech. We focused on local language radio, often in rural Africa, um, and interactive shows where people texted in, or called in, or used social media to interact. And what was interesting is that this is a really vibrant space. It doesn't really capture the sort of the the, the, the tech um, op, uh, you know, optimism of, of the moment, but it's a really vibrant space where a lot is going on, in which people are connecting in new ways through worlds that make sense to them in local languages and hearing people like them talking about issues that really matter to them. And it made us realise that, in a sense, a reality check, and starting with the here and now, and the ways in which technologies matter as they they happen to matter in in African societies, um, is is, is the first sort of cardinal uh, condition for doing something of, of greater value. And what we ended up doing was looking at how that kind of ability for connectivity that matters in social spaces that African uh, communities value is something that could be amplified, that could be actually used as a sort of form of power towards um, (coughs) whether it's development actors or governance authorities. And what we set ourselves with a challenge was, can we engage hard-to-reach African communities in conversations that matter to them using new communication technologies and then listen intelligently to those conversations in the sense of letting them flow in local languages, um, letting them be not not structured by surveys, et cetera, and let them be the sorts of conversations that people want to have about the issues that matter to them, Um, and combine some really innovative approaches in in language analysis, in data science, um, and, and social science frameworks to make sense of this really exciting buzz of new forms of voice. And I think for for us that has proven to be a, a fascinating journey, um, partly um, with the organisations we've worked with. Uh, we've done we're doing some work right now with UNICEF in Somalia that's a, reaching. Um, a whole swathe of the population through a large number of radio shows and interactive programs and then enabling um, the the, the gathering of viewpoints on issues like um, health, and women's health, um, malaria, vaccinations um, and enabling the, the programming teams to actually understand the kinds of priorities and beliefs and concerns that exist amongst populations that should shape the decisions that they make. And we've also done some work with Oxfam in northern Kenya um, amongst communities that are affected by oil and gas exploration to try and understand their priorities and use that to influence both the corporate actors as well as the government about taking more of those priorities into account. Um, And finally, some... Great work with our longest-standing partner, um, World told Story, who really are a, an organisation that um, has been fascinating exciting and challenging in a really good way, in a sense to work with Have really pushed the boundary of what we're doing. Because in a sense, um, what Well-Told Story are doing, and Rob's going to tell you more about them now, is they, the whole idea of what they're doing is to listen intelligently to the youth that they work with in East Africa, that actually that they're driving the agenda that um, World told Story then are working with. And that's a very different way of thinking about working in, and, um, um, in the continent. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Rob and first say a couple of words to introduce him. As I said, he's the CEO of Well-Told Story. And they're a, a twice Emmy Award winning uh, media research and production company based in Nairobi and working in East Africa. And what they do is they use insight and data um, and a sort of a multi-platform interactive media approach to reach literally millions of young people in both Kenya and Tanzania, and creating social econo- and economic value for them. i will tell you a lot about how they do it. But the heart of it is a multimedia platform called Shujaz, um, which is just brilliant in the way that it's, um, it, it, it captivates the attention and excitement and interest of young Kenyans and Tanzanians. And it's through that conversation that's on young people's terms rather than our terms, um, that they've done um, some really fascinating work across a range of priority sectors. Um, Rob's been in Kenya for 20 years, arrived there from Scotland, um, and before founding Well-Told Story, he set up a, an art, um, a, a art studio, visual art studio, called Kuana Trust, <laughs> uh, and before that worked in Ford Foundation in East Africa, um, and also as a professional musician and produced um, public interest TV. So with that wide-ranging background... Um, Really happy to introduce him, and, uh, and then afterwards we'll, we'll keep going with Mariam, and then we'll open up to questions. So thank you, Rob. Is
0: this your presentation? No, it's on the screen. Ha, that's something good, isn't it? Well, we'll see. If I click, will it go? That's the question. Oh, no. That's not me, though. I've got too many clicks, it's going to drive you nuts. I put this slide up. This is a picture of my office in Nairobi. Because uh, Sharath asked me to talk about uh, youth, Kenyan youth, and I thought, well, I don't qualify. So I should at least show you some of the guys I work with, who are indeed legitimate Kenyan youth, and uh, and these are the guys who make the media channel called Shujaz that I'm going to tell you a little bit about, and then I'm going to tell you a bit about uh, some analysis we've done on digital, the emerging digital space, uh, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about sort of two stories that I got this week from our uh, no, still not clicking, two stories that I got this week from our Facebook pages actually. Uh, Facebook supporting Shujaze, which I thought would be interesting, especially after Sh- Sh- uh, Sharath's kind of big picture, to give you a really, really sort of tiny, sort of intimate picture of how we think uh, social media, especially, is changing the way uh, life is for young people in East Africa. So, as Sharath said, I'm based in Nairobi, um, but I work in both Kenya and Tanzania, I and my, my colleagues. And uh, I'm in a minute, I'm hoping to show you more about it. You will, I promise. Yeah, oh, that's good. Uh-huh. OK. Uh-huh. He's coming back. Getting excited. I am, the All right. <laughs> Is that Mina? Oh, come on. All right, you've seen enough of that. And it works. Hooray. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, so I, t- I show this slide because we call this our unofficial logo sometimes. So this is the 2009 census data by Population Age Group in Kenya. Um, so as you can see, half the population under 18, I think it's like 52% of Kenyans under 18 in 2009, 6 million, 7 million more births since then. So we're at, well, you know, you can see the, the difference it makes. A huge, huge, huge... Uh, sort of youthful population the whole of sub-saharan Africa looks a bit like this And if you if you wanted to put the people who are in the cabinet You know the people who run the country they're not at the bottom there And what's interesting is every time I show this slide to kind of business leaders and politicians in East Africa where I live Almost without fail. They ask for a copy of this slide It's like nobody's spotted this and actually to be fair. I had to make this slide You know from the census data. I couldn't find it on it. All right, okay, so So we're interested, the work I do, I'm very interested in that that 15 to 24 stripe in particular. Um, So we've been telling a story in East Africa for about the last seven years, addressing those guys in that stripe. And and if, if those of you know a little bit about East African history, 2007, the elections went wrong, beginning of 2008, big sort of almost civil war. And a lot, a lot, a lot of people in that second from bottom stripe sort of pulled into almost civil war by politicians who found them easy to manipulate. So we set out at that time to say, well, can we try and fill that gap with a different type of story? Can we serve them with the media in a way that will be both engaging but also purposeful? Can we add value to people who aren't currently getting something from the system for whom the future isn't looking very good? So and we thought... Because the guys we wanted to talk to weren't in school, they weren't uh, reached by formal media, we thought the way we're going to get their attention onto good stuff is through a story. Uh, And we've since then been telling a story about this guy. So he's called Boye to his mum, but we know him as DJB. And he's a 19-year-old school leaver. He left school last year. Um, I've been saying that for seven years. He left school last year. And he didn't get a job. He didn't get a place in college. But instead, he has a secret radio station that he's built in his bedroom from where he's able to hack into the frequencies of FM stations with his radio show, a call-out to young people. Shujaz Heroes FM. It's a call-out. Step it up. Come on, young people. Let's go. If you've got something that's working for you, if you've got a bright idea, send it to me, Facebook me, send it on a text, and I'm going to share it with everybody. And together we the young people will step up. That's the design. right? So then there are a bunch of other people in his world who are actually listeners to his show, young boys, young girls, young women, young men from urban and rural and poor and middle class who have an adventure every month and they write in and they share it. And so our idea at the beginning was we would just use that kind of device to model good ideas, innovations, cool things, and people would clock them and then start to do them as we know that kind of works but actually what happened was on kind of day one it wasn't just our characters who were interacting with our DJ it was um it was real young people who started interacting they started sending text messages doing the thing that our story characters did and actually in, last year in Kenya our DJ in the middle he got 1.9 million text messages so it, it's happening at scale right and actually, it's, it's our collaboration with Sharath and Africa's Voices which is helping us make sense of that, because the volumes are so massive. Um, and something else we've figured out, though, is that if there's one thing you must never do and it, with a kind of young person, if you want them to kind of take advice, is, is that. And it's particularly relevant if it's a white hand. Actually, that's, that's my hand in that one. And, and actually, what we figured out, though, by, by making this story, is that the reason it kind of works is because it's a conversation that we've created. It isn't that there's somebody who's come with good advice. It's that young people themselves have come with good advice. And that our characters represent young people, and they actually these days only ever share things that have been suggested to them by other young people. And that's created a kind of a a mechanism to deliver inspirational thoughts and ideas that is extremely engaging for young guys who say... That's us now. This is a a space that we can occupy and share. And that's become very important to the the idea of how we create knowledge amongst ourselves as this community of characters. So so we have this story and we tell it on a bunch of different media. So I'm waving some comic books around because that's the sort of big thing we do. So I'm happy to be at a literary festival with our comic books. I think this is a first for, for us. Um, We make radio, too, uh, every day, syndicated. We do lots of stuff on social media. We've made television. We made a movie last year on a mobile phone and syndicated it through video dens around Kenya and Tanzania. Games we're doing on phones. Um, And and in the end, a kind of a space we've made, which isn't like a media space in, in in a conventional sense. So somebody told me that the guy who, and I can't remember his name, but the guy who coined the expression cyberspace was watching kids back in the 80s with the early days of video games. He was watching kids playing a video game and he realised they weren't looking at the screen of the computer game. They were looking through the screen into this thing he called cyberspace. And I think in a way, with the benefit of hindsight, that's what we've created with this story is this idea that our audience can be kind of look through the media into the worlds that the characters and they themselves occupy. And that's become a very compelling Narrative that a lot of people are excited about. And actually, we have a sort of ongoing audience in Kenya of 50% of all the youth. So about 4.7 million people follow this story in Kenya. And Tanzania, is where we launched a year ago, is, is getting there too. So it's a very, very, very huge channel of youth engagement that we've made. All right. So... Oh, and we want some memes. Um, so the, the key thing here is this idea about collective discussion. Now, this is where we've got to with our sort of theoretical view of how our media effects change is this idea that by causing a discussion to happen on a shared subject by surfacing an idea that people weren't thinking about before but surfacing it through this channel through this sort of non-threatening non-intrusive mechanism causes a conversation to break out that a lot of people can participate in and actually what we're seeing by tracking it among others with with the help from the Team at uh, Africa's Voices in Cambridge is to say, well, what happens in that conversation over time? Does it evolve? Can we look at discussion evolving in the digital space and use that as a way of noticing what kind of change is happening in the physical space? Um, so we've been doing some research recently, and I think this is just to back up Shara's point about how, how fast change is happening. So our audience is very much at the bottom of the pyramid uh, in Kenya, but so but this is a nationally representative sample. Um, owner mobile 80 well, 87% of 15 to 24s or of 20 to 24s you, you can see for yourself what's interesting here is that the the really the spike is in the 20 to 24 year olds not the 15 to 19s and that's just about access to devices and access to airtime um, something else this is just some other stats here which are interesting i think the, the the big one for me is that top left right so 20% on average our audience, 15 to 19s in Kenya, 15 to 24s, are spending 20% of their monthly income on airtime. So it's, that's about 600 shillings, $6, $6 US That would be 20% of the average income. But nonetheless, it's a sort of, such a significant com- c- component of people's spending. We've got a lot of data on this. But um, something else interesting, I thought, this idea about... Um, I think American, young American, American youth online, up to 100 times a day, Kenyans on average... Is it twice a day or three times a day? Very, very intense periods of activity online. You go online, you have very limited resources. You try and create as much social capital as you can in as short a time as possible. You go offline again. You go on again. You put on a photograph. You make noise on your channels on the the sort of seven or eight social media that you're on, and you go off again. So very, very interesting sort of behaviors there. Um, And also that idea about it's all in the evening. It's when you get home, you're borrowing someone else's telephone. I don't know where we go next. Okay, so then I've got a quick story. I've got two little stories to end. Um, so this was a, this, I, got, I got this yesterday at lunchtime um, from somebody in our social media team, and he, he came with this story. He said that, he'd, that DJB, our guy, had received this message from a young lady in the audience, which was an inbox message. So it started off as a, as a sort of personal message on Facebook. And essentially what she says is, I'm a, I'm a university student. I'm in second year. I've got no money. I've spent my loan, I, 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 the holidays have started. I don't go back to school until September. I had been offered a job, but then the university went on strike and the guy who offered me the job has withdrawn the offer. Now I have, I've got my kid's sister who I pay for. Uh, I've used my university loan to pay for her school fees. My dad left when we were kids and my mum left when we were kids. So I'm responsible for bringing up my kid's sister. I'm willing to take any reasonable job, she says. But the last line is the one that k- kills me. She says, um, "But I, could join league, so I'm, I, I don't want to join the league of young ladies on the campus who depend on sponsors and boyfriends for money. Please, please." So, so our DJ character wrote back to her and said, "Can I share your message with the audience?" And she said yes. And and people started to reply within just a few minutes. So, so this is a sort of flow of people writing to her to say, your story has touched me. Here's some thoughts. Have you gone for this kind of loan? Yes, I've tried that. Have you gone to the chief's office? You can get a bursary? Yes, I've tried that. She says, um, someone says, uh, she? she says, um, I've got somebody near me who's offering work to make chapatis and to make tea in the morning to sell to commuters. If you want that job, it's available to you, someone says. The one below says... Um, Why don't you go gambling? Oh, there's someone, Someone. um, I've got a place near me which is hiring teachers, if you're interested. And somebody else chimes in and says, where? Wapi. The the conversation goes on. Um, I need somebody who can do cake decorations in Eldoret, they say at the top, in Eldo. If you let me know, I can, how much is it, how much are you paying? 5,000 shillings, $50, she says. Um, Someone else says, why don't you go to Sport and bet it. Why don't you gamble it? It's become a huge thing in Kenya recently, this idea of online betting on your mobile phone. They said, no, no, um, that's, too, that's too risky. Anyway, at the bottom, she writes the following by, by 4 30 in the afternoon, she writes another direct message to the DJ. She says, um, I got a job. Thanks God. Um, you're making a big impact. And then the following day, she writes again, I actually got several jobs. <laughs> um, one with a company in my out of town, and one in Eldorette. I'm just overwhelmed she says so so then we did this little analysis yesterday in the evening to say well how did this conversation go so it started off one-on-one right djb our guy and the and the girl writing to her in a private message he shared it on facebook and 56 people got involved in the conversation then those conversations had comments on them and that got to another 20 people and then we were able to see it go beyond us into a kind of the next layer of conversation and 7209 people got involved so this all happened in the space of four hours, I think, in the, in the case yesterday, right? So, so there's something else about diffusion theory, about how in the old days, you know, an idea would pass from an innovator to an early adopter to a kind of late adopter to a laggard, and how ideas flow out through society. So how has this one moved? In the space of four or five hours, 7,000 people involved and actually rallied around this young person to say, we can do something together. I mean, this is something extraordinary, I think, and, and, and really a, a sort of touching and powerful example of how the Internet has democratized information access to it and how people are seizing these as tools that they're owning and making their own. Okay, I've got one other example. I'll, I'll go really quickly through it. This, this was last week on Monday. Um, there has been a series of Monday riots. This is all building up to the elections in, 2013, in 2017. Um, the, Twitter went nuts with this picture, as you can imagine, and the, the narrative was, basically, the country's two p- big political blocks are defined by ethnicity. You've got luos and kikus. The kikus is currently in power. Luo's not in power, broadly speaking. So the impression here was that the guy on the ground was a luo because he was protesting, and he's being beaten by a mainstream by a policeman who must, therefore, be a tool of government. Right? So for the first hours after this picture broke, and there were a lot of other pictures even nastier than this one, um, for the first few hours, this was absolutely divided Kenya on ethnic lines. And then somebody revealed the fact the guy on the ground was not a Luo, but he was a Kikuyu. And then the government got involved with that. Well, and then, of course, there was a whole set of other pictures that went out onto the, onto, uh, you know, the responses and the memes. And then, finally, the government presented another reality, which was that he, he wasn't a Kikuyu. He was actually, oh, he—he was a kikuyu, but he was an innocent bystander who had been caught up in the riot, and uh, and actually he was fine; he hadn't been hurt. And then this extraordinary thing happened, and it happened in our office too. Was that in the morning there was this clash between the two ethnic groups, broadly speaking, and then by lunchtime it was like, hang on a minute, this isn't ethnic. And then by the afternoon, the government was manipulating it by saying, no, 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 this was an innocent guy. He was caught up in the... And, for the..." and there was this thing that happened just after lunch where the whole country went, we're being played by the government. They're putting on a show for us. Something happened in the morning, and they're now manipulating us. And, and, and pictures like this appeared, which, of course, is the same guy, but resurrected From the, you know, after after a few hours, resurrected by government, and here he is, rising again. Uh, And there was a whole string of these memes that happened. But for that, for that second, there was a realization that things have changed, that this space that we thought was open and fair for all of us is being manipulated by the government. And there was a kind of ping that happened as guys went, wait a second, we're being played. And I think I was talking to someone else about it yesterday in the evening and saying how. Five years ago in the election, it was big news that president, now President Kenyatta had a Facebook page. You know, that was like, and five years, everything has changed. This is now the, the political frontier for the 2017 election. is playing out here already. And I think there's going to be a lot of frightening things that happen in this space that we'll be watching over the next year. But broadly speaking, maybe I should actually, shouldn't end here. I should end on that, that lovely picture, because this is uh, you know, where I hope it will be going in any case. Thank you very much.
2: Great. Um, We are hopefully all ready to go with Miriam's presentation, Uh, but that was fantastic, Rob. That got us really going with... uh, some of the best and worst of what's been possible with connectivity. And I think that's kind of the theme that we're struggling with, um, is this ambivalence, this amazing possibility, and these things that are made um, capable for all, but always the tension with the fact that certain types of uh, power are able to seize some of these opportunities, in a sense, more strongly than than others. To tell us a bit more the story of where this may be going in the future in particular in terms of the capabilities on the continent Um, mariam jam um, who's a senegalese born uh, british tech pioneer really been involved in the story of technology and what it's doing on the continent what it can do on the continent um, for a very long time Uh, most recently she's the founder of i am the code which is an african-led global movement to mobilize governments business and investors to support girls and young women in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, arts and design. Um, And it's really um, already an initiative with tremendous um, uh, energy and support behind it. She was honoured as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum for her activism work in empowering and investing in young women and girls. And her company, Spot One Global Solutions, has been involved in helping a range of different actors from the Obama administration, um, Kofi Annan's Africa Progress Panel, um, a range of corporations that are interested in in changing the way that they work um, in introducing um, STEM policies around science, technology, engineering and medicine um, on the continent and, and worldwide. She was named one of the 100 most influential Africans uh, by the Africa Business Magazine and 20 youngest most powerful women in Africa by Forbes. We were talking about this a bit uh, before. Um, and she's a member of a range of different organisations that are doing things that uh, excite and um, um, uh, fascinate me. Most recently uh, she became an advisory board member of Data Pop Alliance, which is a global coalition promoting a people-centred big data revolution. So what that looks like and what it might look like, um, I'll turn over to Mariam and uh, we'll look forward to her, to her remarks. Thanks.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, probably go a little bit on my profile, uh, I'm uh, I'm not m I'm not a Microsoft or a Windows person, I'm a, more a Microsoft. Which one was your one? Yeah. Okay. Is it coming? Okay. okay. Great. I'll probably go a little bit um, back and, and and tell you why I'm here and, and how I made it here. And thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I always say that people like us don't end up in festivals. <laughs> Sometimes we do. I've been in the UK for over 20 years now. And uh, I'm Senegalese-born. I didn't go to school. I'm uneducated. And uh, I, was, uh, I grew up in an orphanage. I was sexually trafficked in Europe when I was 15 years old. So I end up in the UK because I end up in a YMCA in walking. Uh, so I live in the southeast of England, uh, and now Uh, My home is in Guildford, where I used to do cleaning jobs 20 years ago, working in bars, paying for my study, doing temping jobs, working for Sainsbury's and Tesco, and today I'm a CEO, I employ 25 people, and I give back to the UK because the UK gave me a lot, so thank you for having me here. (laughs) So my my job, my work is very focused. Uh, I've been going across the continent for the last uh, five, uh, seven years now, but looking into how I can change the continent. One of the thing I wanted to do is really to, to, to think about how do we make sure that we don't have young women like me growing up in the continent without education and ending up in Europe being sexually trafficked, ending up in orphanages. What can I do as, as a young woman in, in, in the UK? I have everything I need where I am, but I want to go back and make sure that I make changes. I learned how to code seven languages in one year because I didn't have any education. And when I was going to Guildford, uh, the university, I didn't have any education. So I ended up in Guildford College. Then I realized that for me to, to become relevant, I need to learn something completely different. And I started learning how to code. I started going to my local library in Guildford and learning how to read, learning how to code, learning how just learning being completely alphabetic and try to teach myself what to do. So in the last couple of years, I've been thinking, how do I make sure that Africa is is seen in a good light? Then I start focusing on STEM policies. In the last 10 years, the continent has changed a lot, quite a lot. It's not the Africa you know now. It's not the, the Africa you see on BBC, the Africa you see on The Guardian, the poverty, the war, the corruption. You can think about that, but the continent has changed a lot. And sadly, my local town in Guildford Sometimes I feel very sad because I'm the only black woman that sits in Starbucks, and I did a research for Starbucks, where every day I go in my local Starbucks and I see women between 30 and 40 years old. They spend probably 11 pound on macchiato, caramel macchiato coffees, 11 pound, and but the government is not is not doing anything for those people. Then I started getting really frustrated. I said, "What can I do?" Then I wrote a letter to David Cameron, and I said. You are leaving a generation of women in the UK right now uneducated and they're not participating to the economy. They're not educated. And he said to me, I understand your frustration, what can you do? I said, what we need to do is start creating code clubs for women, making sure that we have young women in the UK, in Africa, coding and learning from each other. Then I wrote a proposal for the number 10, and that ended up Starbucks now is funding my local Starbucks and I'm doing some coding clubs in my local library. And the reason why I'm, I, want, I want to focus on women and girls, we, we are better coders. Women are better coders than men. Sorry. <laughs> so, out of my frustration, I said, I need to do something. I need to create a movement. This is not a girls' initiative or a campaign. I need to do something. Then I've been working with Sarah Brown and Gordon Brown for the last five years, and I realized that I needed to do something as an African. Then I created something called, I am the code, because I think I am the code. I came to the UK, I was cleaning, from cleaning to Starbucks, ending, ending up being a CEO, employing people, and today I can code five languages, seven languages, what can I do? Then one day I asked my son, who is 15, what do you think I should do? I was called to speak at Davos, and I said, I'm going to Davos to meet all these people, but I need to see some. My son said to me, mommy, you are the code. I went outside and I googled it. Iamthecode.org was not taken. That's how the I am the code was. <laughs> Honestly, it was so cr- crazy. Then I said, "What can I do?" But you know, you can't just be I am the code. But you need to make sure that I mobilise all this government. So we talk about STEM policies quite a lot in the UK. STEM policies in Africa. So the aid money is going to Africa. People are not focusing on what we need to invest on. And I said to government, the money that comes from DFID or from EU, from whatever, that we need to make sure we invest into STEM policies. The base, the baseline of you know any economy is people need to know at least the basic mathematics, physics, science things like that. We need to make sure kids are coding. Then I start creating this movement. Within two months, we had NS and Young, Microsoft. All these people going crazy about I am the code because I'm I'm touching a very very sensible nerve here. So I, that's why I want people, then I added art and design, because I think that Africa today, if we want to make sure that we're playing the digital revolution, we need to start looking into art design. How do we make sure that our people are involved in the creativity space? That's, what, that's how I am the code was born. Today, if you think about it, if you're sitting in here in Hay, there are 65 million children worldwide who don't have any access to education. I was in the 1970s, I was part of the statistics. So I was this statistic 1970. So I didn't go to school at all. Think about it. And still, this, this, this number is still going up. 29 million illiterate girls live in Africa today. 17 million are missing school in Africa. So I was, if you look early marriage, so I was a trafficked girl in Paris. 15, I ended up in a plane, went to Paris. I'd never been home again. So how do you make sure girls are digitally literate so they don't end up like me? Then I start focusing in the last, couple of, in the last two years, I chaired the Sustainable Development Goals within the World Economic Forum. If you, if you guys are familiar with the MDGs, now we have a chance as a world to start looking into sustainable development goals. I'm a, very, I'm a data freak. I want to see in the next 15 years, how do you make sure girls around the world, not just Africa, girls and boys around the world, have quite of education, they have, you know, we, 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 are, we have a gender parity, we have clean water, we reduce poverty, we, kids have got decent jobs. How do you do that? Then I start focusing on the sustainable development goals. I've got, I want to make sure that 1 million girls learn how to code by 2030. I've got a very big vision, and I know exactly how am I going to do it. And I always said to my people at home, technology is useless if we can't feed the poor you know, uh, feed the hungry and close the poor. We can't just work tech, 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 innovation, 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 if it doesn't give our children a job. My son is 15, and I, I feel for the children in the UK, what do we do for these people? What do we do for the young of the United Kingdom? What do we do for them? My son will be part of the statistic in about five, ten years. Then, a group of us invented something called Canoe, a computer kit. The best way to teach people how to learn is to make it very simple. So right now, for example, in Senegal, we have, we're in 34 countries. In Senegal, we have young girls coding in five minutes. They can literally code JavaScript in five minutes. So they make the computers and they start coding. So the lady you see there is our Kaba. I created the first woman tech network in Senegal called Gigantech. And our Kaba today, she's an entrepreneur. And also, she's not only she's an entrepreneur, she's a computer scientist, and she's teaching young children how to code. And this is what I want to bring to the United Kingdom. This is what I want to bring into my local town in Guildford. So the, those are the canoes. They, they can make the canoes within five minutes literally. They can make the computers themselves and then they can start looking. So within the canoe, you have Java, you have Python, you have Ruby, you have Code Academy as one of the courses inside. But at the same time you have uh, you know, c- creative learning, art, design, mathematics, literacy, numeracy. And I want to bring this into my local Guildford. I really do. Like I said earlier, my goal is by 2030, I teach one million girls globally how to code, at least four languages. And I know this can happen. That's what I want to do. And I want them to get jobs, build a business. We can't talk about digital leaders and digital entrepreneurship if we don't teach people the basic thing. For example, in Africa right now, all our coding services is done in India and in, uh, in, uh, in, in Europe, Poland, Estonia, you know, all those countries. We lack coders in Africa, proper coders. In the UK, we have the same issue. People copy and paste, or they go and see a code and then change the language inside. So we can't do that. We can't build an economy when people don't have the basic, uh, they can't code properly. So this is what I'm trying to do. So those are girls in Uganda. We have girls in Uganda, girls in Senegal. We, like I said, we, have, we are in 34 countries across Africa. And we've been recently welcomed by the UN women. So UN women have decided now to take the I Am The Code methodology. What I'm trying to say is, is go, teach girls how to code, help them become digital literate, make sure that they, uh, you know, they get a job, and help them become entrepreneurs. And I would like my women in the UK, in Guildford, to start doing exactly the same. Join the movement. Thank you.
2: I think we're on to to this mic. Great. Thank you so much, Mariam. Uh, Both presentations, as you can tell, put an academic researcher like me to shame, but um, the the importance of of that work and just the, the very different stories Mary mentioned challenging the dominant narratives. I, it's just impossible to say how important that is. Um, uh, sorry, someone was waving at the back. Um, it's so impossible to say how important that is because... It is something that is perhaps the, the biggest um, challenge is holding that holds back a continent that is moving so fast that most people can't catch up with where things are in the present. Rob gave a sense of that in terms of the demographics and how quickly they're changing. Um, it's so fast and it's so dynamic, and there are still enormous challenges, but it's really important to get seize a sense of the momentum and what that represents. Let's open it up to a few questions in the limited time we've got. Uh, does anyone want to, to kick us off? We've got one in the corner there, microphone coming.
3: Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much to all three. Um, Could I ask Rob a question, a bit of an odd one? What's your motivation in setting up this platform? Okay. um, Is it it ultimately to make money or is it a real social enterprise or a bit confused about the motivation? Yeah, good. Um,
0: So I think it works, doesn't it? Yes. So uh, we're a social business, but we're a business. So we think it's possible to create value for our audience and also value for the business that we run. So we have a, a business model. We call it it's a sort of shared value business model, which says it's possible to be a for-profit company working in a way where our primary objective is the creation of value for our client, for our customer, who's that young person. So in that way, we're a kind of experimental model um, where our first priority is the creation of value for our audience, we call it, but that um, we are also hoping that we can benefit from that, too. And we have a third client, too, who is a kind of advertiser or a development partner or a a funder who's in that triangle. Does that work?
2: Great. We've got a lot of hands up. We'll stay in this front section, first, second row, and then the third row. I'll, I'll grab a few questions, if that's all right.
3: I just wanted to ask Marianne. I was really, really fascinated by what you were saying. And I just wanted, like the girls, you, you showed the photos of the girls in Uganda who don't have access to school. So I'm just interested to understand more about how do you actually enable them? How do they get to the classes where they, where they learn the code? How does that work? Um, my name is Gillian Holdsworth. I'm a consultant in public health medicines. I've been recently approached by SIF, um, which is the Child Investment Fund, around um, the possibility of delivering, I suppose, reproductive health services in low-income countries, specifically in Africa. And actually, we were exploring um, your shoe jazz model, actually, as a way of doing it. So I'm very, very interested to um, hear more about you. You talked briefly about um, the use of this sort of platform for information, for monitoring of health, and also for healthcare. And I was wondering what... Experience you know of or have had in terms of delivery of kind of some some sort of healthcare through um, a mobile platform because um, I'm not sure that we're aware of one in Africa. I thought your your um, presentation was just mind-blowingly amazing, and um, you know I do absolutely anything to help you get those women coding because it's really important. So thank you.
2: Great. We'll just take one more just behind.
3: This was just a quick follow-up to the first question, and that is, do the people who are signing into your websites know that their information is being used for research purposes?
2: Great. So, uh, okay. hand over to Miriam first then. I'll take the last one. Uh,
1: um, yeah. I think one of the, the thing I also would like to just add on what Rob does, right now Africa needs content. We need content. So, I think in addition of uh, the young people wanting information and getting content, we need to create platforms like this where people are uh, learning and, and how to you know, kind of like express themselves in the continent. And right now, social media, Facebook, Twitter, is really amazingly well. But I think one of the, just to answer the coders, so we have uh, 200, and, 200 tech hubs across Africa, creative spaces. And this is what I'm always saying to people. I would like people to know more about what's happening in the continent. We have 73 women tech networks. These young women are a computer science degree. They went to university. And they also uh, know basic JavaScript, or Java, or you know, HTML. So what we do right now, we bring them to our tech hubs. Uganda, for example, we have the young lady, you see Barbara Burungi. Barbara Burungi, we met her at the University of Macquarie five years ago, and she's a mother of three. Now Barbara, Barbara has got a, you know, a computer science degree in Java, but now she's teaching young women how to code HTML. So the Canoe Computer Kit is actually bringing the the Lego within the class, the code clubs, you know, they play Legos, they they sit down and, you know, have their confidence. So we're creating a safe space for these young girls, for example. And then so they don't go outside, being raped, or, or all those issues. So we have 34... Uh, we, we're in 34 countries, so we have tech hubs, code clubs, and Sarah Brown is one of them, Gordon Brown's wife, she's piloting now in many, many African countries, you know, how to make sure that technology is enabling these young girls. And also, we're creating a space of creativity. And one of the things I was just saying earlier is that we need to make sure we understand that the, there's so many opportunities in the continent, as in, in Africa, and we need to make sure that we collaborate and work together as a global platform, uh, and, and to make sure that you know we really understand what's happening in the continent right now.
0: Um, we, we've done lots of work on, on uh, health-related stuff. You know, how do we improve the uh, lives and livelihoods of young people in our audience? So there's, and, and interesting, you mentioned SIF. So we, we also we do some things with them. And uh, so the, the kind of the the thing about the health, and I mean, in a comic book, you can't do much. You know, health. I can't, you know. I don't know how, how you do that, but what you can do is you can change the way people talk about health. And, uh, and you can change what we would say is the discourse around health. And, and what we're seeing, I think, and the work we're kind of trying to do now uh, on this big scale we're at, is to, and, and particularly in the kind of health sector, is to sort of flip the, the model from being one where the, the engine that we use to create better health outcomes is a push model, where we go through networks of health facilities to try and deliver services that might or might not be wanted by the the potential beneficiary, Mm -hmm. to say, well, if we take it instead to the place where people already are and change the way they're talking and thinking about their health outcomes, then you flip it from that push model to a pull model where people say for themselves, actually, I'd like the health outcome because I've got these other things I'm also thinking about. So what we've seen recently is that all of these things ride out together in our, in our audience, and we do lots and lots and lots of extremely deep research on this. So, um, so for example, if, if a young person um, starts using contraception, their length of time spent in school is longer, and then they don't get married so early, and then they have more money in their pocket, mm-hmm. and then they have more financial assets, and then they have di- more digital tools on their mobile phone, and then they have a more positive attitude about civic engagement. So there's a sort of jigsaw puzzle that builds around, but it started with a sort of health idea. But actually, health is, the, is almost the sort of rider on the yeah, edge. Yeah. It's, a, it's a, an empowerment thing that happens when people say, I actually have a reason to look up positively about the future, and when my attitude about the future changes, then all of these other decisions start getting made for the better. Because of course I'm going to use contraception, you know, if I think I have something to protect next year. But the, traditionally that hasn't been the approach. The approach is you know, we have these clinics and that's how we push out our services. And then we're annoyed when people don't come for them.
1: Within our code clubs we have a health. Uh, you know, we use technology and health. So as Rob said we use health as a way of talking about tech and innovation. So in, in the code clubs in Kampala and Senegal, Senegal is a Muslim country. Girls don't just come out all the time. You need to ask the mom and dad to give them permission. So when they come, for example into the, tech, the code clubs, they can sit down and start talking about health you know all the stuff we, we take for granted here. The girls can talk about it within the court clubs. Yeah. It's like it's a safe space for them to talk.
2: Unfortunately, I can't believe we've uh, we've spent our hour so quickly, which is a, a tremendous shame. Um, I do think I'll probably have to bring it to a close. One other question. Uh, very soon. There was one question about research, and 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 I think just to yeah. if we can jump in, that's a. So a really interesting uh, challenge is, is what do you do uh, in terms of how do you get informed consent? Because you can also just do it in a very simplistic way. And one of the, the um, aspects of our work with Rob has been trying to ensure that we stick to the kind of research integrity standards that we have around informed consent. And where, where it can relate to SMS, in the research we've done, we've been using SMS as a way to do that. Um, but fundamentally, I think the challenge is when people are communicating in a social space, um, and often in a space in which at some point in time they're communicating amongst others who they don't know who are strangers but within a group um partly and, and then leaving a, di- a digital trail um, that trail becomes something that can be researched and there's a i think a challenge between knowing where does the individual attribution to that that's those statements like how far how much closely do you attach it to an individual and how do you actually just collect at a, at a more aggregate level a sense of where those beliefs are changing and how the conversation is changing and is there a balance to be struck one of the real dilemmas in this space, I think, is, mm. is actually dealing with these issues, and it's an ongoing one. Um, but I don't think I've put a, a, a neat answer. Do you have
0: anything? I don't. I, that was a better answer than the one I was going to give. But I must say, I was thinking: Should I put a black splodge on the names of the on my social media screen grabs that I put there? Because I thought, you know, I don't know those people, but they've given their permission to the people in. The, I mean, there's a quarter of a million people in that group, so they're in a group sharing these messages with quarter of a million.
1: Yeah, but Africans are now aware yeah. of data. They are aware of their own data. So I don't like researchers very much. <laughs> yeah. But Africans are aware of their own data. And now the social media is a way actually of aggregating this data, but also having a say on the data. So if they don't like what Rob does, they go on. Ke- Kenyans are amazing at it. They, go on, right. they have their own hashtag and just disagree. So I think this is why we need to think about the, the power the citizens have right now in the continent. is kind of like huge. If they don't agree, they will say no to it.
2: So the big final and last statement, <laughs> the narrative's changing, the game's changing, it's changing faster than any of us can see it happening. That's what's so exciting, and that's why I think there is indeed a revolution going on. So thank you very much to Mariam for <laughs> God. Um,